Parshat Bahar. When my uh, brother decided to go into the army, um, he did it in precisely the way that I would not advise anybody else to do. He came back, he was in YU. I had announced I was going to the army. He's like, you are not going to the army first. Left YU after a year, came back to Israel, got here in December. Um, there was no nefesh benefesh. There was no, you know, lave or TVA or Hezde. There was just Chashi Freeman going to the army on his own. Did his Manila, did his Tzav Rishon, all on his own. Got drafted, did a Kibush, went to the Tzanchanim. And um, this was in February of 1982. In June of 1982, on a Sunday morning at about 5 a.m., 20,000 troops crossed the border into Lebanon, which began the, what they now call the first, but I call it the only Lebanon war. He was at the time maybe four months in the army. Five months, so he was still in the sloop. He hadn't even finished Tiranut, which was six months, right? So he wasn't part of the fighting. He was, you know, in the Bach Tzanchanim, whatever. And then when he finished uh, Maslul, so they did some Imun, Kav, whatever, and then he went to Kursmakim, right? Um, nope, I'm sorry, that was much later. He was still in Maslul. And then they took him out to Lebanon. And I believe it was a couple days, I forget it was before or after Rosh Hashanah, 1982. Um, there was a lot going on, and they sent the Tzanchanim into Sabra. There were two refugee camps called Sabra and Shatila, um, and they were hotbeds of terrorism and fire. I mean, this is Lebanon, it's not even Aza. And, um, but they were like a backup unit, because they were like, you know, six, seven months in the army. What did they know? So they were brought in as a kochatudah, like the backup to the main force. But one of the challenges at that time was when you went into the camps... So they obviously knew the area much better than we did. They knew every alley, they knew every tunnel, they knew everything. So a large group of terrorists over the rooftops circled around behind the main force and got behind them and ambushed my brother's unit, my brother's pluga. They were in armored personnel carriers, uh, American uh, M113s, which are like, I mean, it's like driving in a, in, in a, in a tin can made of aluminum foil. Um, they were... Maybe a regular M16 bullet wouldn't go through them, but a 762 from a Kalachnikov would actually pierce them, and certainly grenades, missiles, whatever. The terrorists had RPGs, and uh, they opened fire on them. Um, they hit the armored personnel carrying front. Now, the most dangerous exposed position in an APC is obviously the commander. In Russian units, so the commanders sit inside with the turrets closed, but Israelis, commanders are out so we can see and do better battle and whatever. They're pros and cons to both. They didn't have enough commanders. This was a, you know, an infantry unit that was still in training. So they took like soldiers who they trusted and they put them in the turrets. So my brother was actually in the turret as a commander, but he wasn't a commander. He had been, he was like seven or eight months in the army, right? Barely trained, never had any combat experience, never even did a cop. Saw the armored personnel carry in front of him, hit by an RPG, watched his memem Nitsan, whose family he's still close with, his torso was blown into the air, right? Almost immediately after that, the armored personnel carry in the back of the column, right? They were supposed to be protected by tanks, but the tanks, somebody had miscalculated, the tanks couldn't get through the narrow alleyways, so the APCs went in on their own. Not imagining there were RPGs there, you know, machine gun fire, whatever. Um, the APC in front was it, the APC in the back was it, classic ambush, they're stuck. So very quickly they realized that the terrorists have RPGs, which means you have to get out of these armored personnel carriers because, you know, 
If a missile hits them, that's it. So they clambered out of the armored personnel carriers and they began to take cover. The only problem was that all their commanders were killed. There was one sergeant who lost it completely, which I would never judge, under fire, threw down his gun, started screaming, according to the way my brother described the essay, if I'm getting the story right. And he and a bunch of others took cover in an alley. The problem was he was the radio man. He had the radio with him, right? Problem was they didn't quite know how to describe. They, they weren't commanders. They had no idea where they were. They didn't yet know how to look at the map, what the coordinates, where they were supposed to be. So they were able to radio brigade command and tell them they'd been ambushed. They were able to tell them all the commanders were dead, but they had no idea how to describe to them where they were. It took four hours for the brigade to finally figure out where they were and get them out of there. And in those four hours, they were basically between a rock and a hard place, right? Um, in fact, this had such a powerful impact on my brother. Um, he had rented an apartment in Kiyat Yovel, and I would sometimes come from Gush for Shabbos. I still wasn't in the army. And I remember one Shabbos, just the two of us, we were hanging out in the apartment, and Friday night I heard, like, moaning coming from his room. And it kind of woke me up. And I got up and I went into his room, and he wasn't in his bed. And there was like this kind of like he was talking, he was moaning. And then I realized he had rolled off his bed and rolled under his bed. And he was taking cover under his bed. He was having a nightmare. Right? No idea if that's PTSD. Nobody had diagnosed that back then. He had a, another American who was with him in the unit, a guy named Bill, who had been a ski patrol instructor in Colorado, not a religious guy. And, you know, for some reason had decided he wanted to join up in the Israeli army. He came, he fought, whatever it is. And I remember one Sunday morning, I was seeing my brother off. He was going, I think, to Yad or the Tachana, back up to Lebanon. So I went to see him off because, you know, you never knew when and if you were going to see him again. And Bill was there, a very funny guy. Um, had a very funny way of talking, but I couldn't really repeat 90% of the vocabulary he was using. At one point I said to him, like, we were talking, he's like, what? Like, like he didn't grow up religious. He was, you know, barely knew he was Jewish. Colorado. I said, what, what are you doing here? Like, why did you come here? Why, you know, never forget this. He looks at me because some things are worth dying for, man. That's what he said, right? And that line stuck with me. Is that true? Are there things that are worth dying for? Why is all this going on? I'm making announcements about bomb shelters. Why are we worried about missiles? There is a simple solution to this problem. It's called El Al. We all go to the airport. You know, it might take a year to get everybody out. And we go to New York, Chicago, LA. Like, there's plenty of room. They could take 10 million Jews, 6 million, 8 million. What are we doing here? Is this really worth dying for? Why is land so important, you know? Shabbos, which is arguably the most important mitzvah, certainly one of them, is nitzchef or pikuch nefesh. If somebody's life is at risk, you're mechal Shabbos. So why are we willing to give up so much for a piece of land in the middle of the nastiest place on earth, the Middle East? What are we doing here? I remember once Danny Hillman uh, came to speak here. This is the father of Benji, my cousin who was killed in the Second Lebanon War. And... Um, you know, afterwards he was talking and he took some questions at the end. And he, somebody asked him, one of the guys asked him, what are some of the dumber questions that people ask you? This is an English man who with his family made Aliyah when his son was four years old. Right? Benji was four, Shimon was 
I guess one or two, I don't remember. Maybe he wasn't even born yet. Made Aliyah, brought them up in Ranana, and then his oldest son, Benji, right, the second of three, went to the war and eventually never came back. So what was the dumbest question that people ask you? And I'll never forget this. He said, well, probably one of the dumber questions people ask me is, if you knew that your son, that this was going to happen, would you do it again? Would you make Aliyah? And we're all sitting there. I don't know what everybody else is thinking. I'm like, why is that a dumb question? Like, I understand that question. And he looks at us, and I think he kind of got that we didn't understand why that was a dumb question. He goes, he looks at us, he says, in the following language, he says, what sort of an idiot would make Aliyah if he knew it would get his son killed? Of course I wouldn't have come. Doesn't mean I regret coming. That was powerful. I was thinking about that. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't play well if you put that in the Jerusalem Post, but I understand that. Like, what are we doing here? Right? Does anybody know who Yosef Trumpledor was? You heard that name? Yosef Trumpledor fought in the Battle of Tel Chai. He was a veteran of the Russo-Japanese Wars. He, was, he fought in, you know, led a unit, and he lost an arm fighting, uh, I think, the Japanese. And he was fighting in the Battle of Tel Chai against marauding Arab mobs, and he was eventually killed. And one of the last things that he was reported to have said was, Tov lamut ba'adam It's good to die for one's country. If you're going to go, that's a good way to go. And I've met people who lost children in unfortunate circumstances who vehemently disagree with that statement. There's no good way to die. There's just dying. Or is that true? Now, why do I bring this up? Because Parshat Bahar, we get into the topic of Shemitah. Right? It's interesting that, that, that the mitzvah of Shemitah is given to us. It's somehow associated with Har Sinai. Right? The Parsha begins... Right? Come to Israel every seven years, the land will lie fallow. You're going to let it rest. And all of the mitzvot and the halachot of Shemitah. It's interesting why Shemitah is connected to Har Sinai. In fact, that's the famous question. In modern Hebrew, right, is an expression that means, I like peanut butter, do you ski? What does this have to do with that? And many of the commentaries answer this and talk about this. And, you know, Shemitah is seven years. There are seven cycles of seven years, you know, that get to the 50th year, which is Yovel. We're in the middle of counting seven cycles of weeks. It gets to the 50th day, which is Shavuot. Yovel is on Yom Kippur, which is when we got the second Luchot. Shavuot, when we received the first, or at least started the process of Kabbalah Satara. We blow Shofar at the end of Yom Kippur. Shavuot and Harsinai, we heard the sound of the Shofar. There's a lot of parallels there. But I want to focus on one particular detail in all the laws of Shemitah. You know, when we think of Shemitah, we just think of not farming and not, you know, picking the fruit or when you can pick the fruit or is that source, you know, does it have Kedusha Shvit? There's a whole realm of halachot that we don't think about. Here's one. This is the beginning of Ravi, if you want to look this up. Perak Chafhei Pasuk Chafhei. It's an easy Pasuk to remember. 25-25, right? Ki Yamuch Achicha. When your brother, your fellow Jew, will become downtrodden, right? He'll be poverty-stricken, right? Umachar Me'achuzato. And he will sell a portion of his inheritance. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about selling a portion of his inheritance? You may know. Land. Every Jew has a chilek in Eretz Yisrael. 
and he decides to sell it because he's down on his luck, he's got debt, whatever it might be, right? His cousin, his relatives, have to try as best they can to redeem that land. Right? Let's say I have a portion in Eretz Israel, and it's a farm up in, you know, in the north. And I, uh, I don't know, my business venture goes south, and I lose a lot of money, so I sell my land because I have no choice. I have to pay off my debtors. It's a mitzvah for my cousins and my family, right, to find a way to put up the money and buy that land back, okay, to redeem the land. Now, this is interesting, right? Um, first of all, Rashi points out here, and the Rambam Paskins this way, right? Melamed, why does it say, ki machar? Right? Why don't we just say, if somebody sells his land, it's a mitzvah to get it back, right? Because that's your portion, right? So Rashi says, Melamed, this is a medrash in Tereskorah, you're not allowed to actually sell your field. You know, it's your portion. You're, I don't know, the tribe of Yisachar. This is part of the Yisachar tribal lands. You can't sell it to someone else. This is your family's land. Unless you're poverty-stricken, Right? Okay, and not only that, um, if somebody is then able to buy it back, like you can't delay doing this, right? So first of all, you can only sell the land if you're in dire poverty. And second of all, if, if let's say you sold the land for $10,000, and a year later we put together the, 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 the money and we go back to, I don't know, Avery and say, we want to buy the land back, $10,000. He has to say yes. And not only that, he has to sell it at the same price that we bought it for, no matter what the fluctuation of the market was. Trat Naramba. So now, this is interesting. First of all, there are a lot of questions this brings up. First question is, why own land? Why is land important? You know? I mean, the less stuff you have, the Gemara says, Anybody know how that ends? If you have lots of stuff, anybody know how that ends? People who are wealthy have big problems. You know, it may sound good if you watch the right movie to make a lot of money. You should know it complicates your life. My children will never fight over the inheritance because there's not much to fight over. You know what I mean? We got one house. Four kids. Split it up. You take this corner, you take the Come on, no. Right? We're three boys. My parents are approaching 89 years old, right? And, you know, if you're a responsible person, so there's things that you can do to make sure you create a power of attorney, you make sure that you can help them if they need it, and whatever. And we're very close to my parents, and they know they never have to worry, we'll be there for them, whatever, right? So, you know, long ago, the three of us got together, and, and you know, I said, listen, we are never going to have an argument over money. You know why? Because there's three of us. And by definition, if two out of three decide one way or another, then that's the way we're going to go. And everybody agreed. So at one point, one of my brothers said, well, but what happens if three of us have three different opinions? I said, it'll never happen. I said, why not? I said, because if two of you have different opinions, I'm only going to pick one of those two opinions. Because it's not worth it to me to ever have a debate. I've seen families broken up over these things. But the easiest way to not argue over money is don't have money. Why is it so important to own land? Why do we need that? By the way, nice thing. In this country, you actually don't own the land. I remember 
when we were, you know, you finally reached, there's no rent control in Israel. So we finally figured out, you know, after a year or two that, you know, r- renting just doesn't make sense. You know, you, I, I remember this still. I was in the cola, I was struggling to make sense. I trying to figure it out. Renting this place for 600 or $650 a month, you know, for the year we got married and we're stretching, borrowing from here, taking there. And one day this guy calls me up, the landlord, and he says, uh, I just want you to know. In the contract it says that, you know, you know, if you want to renew the lease, you get the first right to renew the lease if you want to, because you're renting. But you just know we're renting, you know, we're, we're, I'm changing the rent from $600 to $900. That was like a huge jump. And there's no way that I'm going to manage to pay $900. So I said to him, what do you mean? How could you raise it from $600 to $900? He goes, what do you mean I'm raising it to $900? He says, you can't do that. He goes, yeah, I can. And, I, you know, I thought there must be some, lo- no, he's right. So I realized, well, he's going to raise the 900 next year. If he can get, I said, why would you do that? He says, because I can get people to pay it. <laughs> okay, capitalism, right? So you realize you have to buy a place in this country. Okay, so the bank is really buying it. And eventually you get the mortgage, you get the money, you put, sign the contract, and then you have to go sign all the paperwork that it's going to be yours. And they bring you out this 50-page contract. Now, I'm not a stickler. I'm not like nuts. But if you're signing a 50-page contract and it's everything you will ever own and debt, you should read the contract. So I said to him, look, I, you know, I'm American. And even though I've been to the army, I can't just sign this. I got to read it. He goes, okay, you can read it. So you just know a lot of people who want to buy these houses, whatever it might be, is a new project. And if you don't sign it today, it could get bought out by someone tomorrow. Not to mention that the price is going up. And this was true. In the amount of time that we deliberated, you know, whether to buy it and thinking about it, could it, it went up $10,000. So this was the day. So I sat in that office. It was a 50-page contract, right? And I read through 50 pages of this contract. I get to this one page, and it says that you're signing chakira, chakira. Chakira means you're leasing the land. There's an agreement that you sign that you understand that in this country, you don't actually own the land that it's sitting on. You've leased the property for 50 years, and after 50 years, it reverts to the government. And you're supposed to sign that page, 50 pages. And I'm like, I am not signing that. I'm not gonna spend all this money and it's not mine. I ripped the page out, threw it in the garbage, signed the rest of it. You never notice. <laughs> True story. I don't know. I don't know if one day it'll come back to haunt me or not, but that's a true story, right? Why? True story. Why do you need to own stuff? Second question. Second question, right? If those are your sneakers, and I want to buy your sneakers. One of the affectations of the fact that those are yours is that you can sell it. If this is your land, why can't you sell it? And the Rambam is very clear on this, as is Rashi. The Rambam in Hilchos... By the way, where is Hilchos Shemitah V'yovel? Zerayim, very good. Last set of halachas in Zerayim, okay? It says like this. Hamocheret um, Sadehu. Uh, no, this is the wrong halacha. One second. Lo yimkor. Perak echadasar. Perak yilal halacha gimel. Lo yimkor. Adam beito o sadeh achutato. A person should not sell his land, right? The, the, the inheritance of his, his tribal inheritance. Af al pi shehem chuzrin achar zman. Even though at the end of the 50 years Yovel, they return to the original owner. Elaim ken henni, unless he's poverty stricken. You're not supposed to sell your land. That's a strange Allah. What do you mean that's supposed to be land? It's something that you own and you sell it and that's how you make business. Right? 
But if you're just selling the land so that you could have some money and you're not poverty stricken, or to make business, you want to do real estate, or so that you can you know, get property or cattle so you sell your land, you're not allowed to do this. Now, if you sell it, is the sale good? That's a whole other discussion. Since when do you own something that you can't sell? What does it mean you own something and you can't sell it? And if you can't sell it, is it really yours? Third, you can actually force the buyer to sell. If I'm in debt and I need money, and so you see a good deal, and it's three years after Yovel, so you say, okay, I can handle this for a long time. And so, you know, you give me $10,000 for the piece of property. And then my cousins come along and said, you know, he wasn't supposed to do this. He only did this because he's property stricken. We're going to give you back $10,000. You are not allowed to say no. You have no choice. And if you say no, say fine, you go to a Besden, and they'll say it. So not only is it not mine to sell, it's not yours to buy. Well, so whose is it? What does this mean, this halacha? Right? By the way, really interesting. What about if I don't own a piece of land, but I own an apartment? I'm in an ir mukefet choma, I'm in a walled city, Yericha or Yerushalayim. And there were apartments. Some of them were built in the walls. They've actually found some of these here in Yerushalayim that date back to the time of Chizkel Amalek, right? So it's not a piece of land. It's an apartment in a building, right? So what does the Pasuk say? Perak chafei Pasuk chaftet, okay? Ve'ish ki yimkor bayit moshav ilchoma v'aitagula Torah tom shnat mimkarol. If you sell an apartment, right, then you can only redeem it for a year. And after that, it works. So without getting into the details and what that really means, and Allah, you have to learn Elchol Shemitah V'yovel, there's clearly a difference between selling an apartment and selling a piece of land. Why? If you can't sell property because whatever the reason. So why? What does this mean? And one last question, right? Allah of Shemitah. Shemitah is a fascinating idea. Every seventh year, everybody takes a break. Now, we don't get this today. We don't even get this being here and having to deal with the halachot of Shemitah, which for most of us just means, do I eat the orange or not? You know, can I plant a plant? You know, which celery am I, lettuce am I buying? But for people who are agricultural, this is a whole different spread. So I worked in Kibbutz Ein Surim one summer. It was uh, really before I started my serious learning gush. I had a couple months in yeshiva, went to the Kibbutz for the summer. And um, it was right before Shemitah, and I stayed in touch with the kibbutz. And they had a deal. Um, they sold their lands, and they worked the lands only so that the businesses wouldn't fall. They, th- that year, they were determined not to make a profit. So because of that, they were more relaxed. They were able to work less. And anybody on the kibbutz, because most of them were agricultural, any of them on the kibbutz who didn't want to work that year had the right to take the year off. I think it affected their stipend. And go learn. And it didn't matter what they wanted to learn, like the kibbutz, you go to yeshiva, you go to university, whatever it was. And I remember talking to a kibbutznik, Shlomo Yogev, and, and it was the first time I ever understood Shemitah. Like every seven years, I get to take a break. And I go learn, and I enrich my mind, and I don't have to go out to the fields. It's an unbelievable system. And that relates to Shabbat. And it seems to me that that system is designed so that everybody gets, every so often, a time to pause and to grow and to rediscover meaning and to get inspired again, right? It should be a Jewish thing. Except that it's not really. Because there's no Shemitah in Tinek. You could be a farmer in America, right? You could have an orchard, whatever. There's no Shemitah. During Shemitah, pick as many apples as you want, sell as many apples as you want. 
So Shemitah is such a wonderful social idea. Why does it only exist in Eretz Yisrael? Shabbos exists in Chutz Laaretz, right? Well, except for the Ramban, it's a Zecher, maybe, but that's probably not, but whatever. But, you understand? So what is Shemitah, what is this all about? Why do we need to own land? Why can't we sell the land? Whose is it anyway? Why is an apartment different? And why is it only in, in, in Eretz Yisrael? There is an amazing Tosos. This is a Tosvos in Baba, take a guess. Baba Vasra, yes. When you meet her, ask her if she knows this Tosvos. If she does, then she's serious, okay? That didn't evoke even a, oh wow. Okay. Ein lecha adam. He's speaking about the Jewish people here. She'ein lo arba amot be'eret Israel. Every Jew has his four amot in Eretz Israel. Okay, this is what I second day. Every one of us has some place in Israel, four amot, it's about the size of this space by the bima, and that's your spot. That's yours. You are connected to some piece of Eretz Israel. What is Ketushat Makom all about? Why do we need Ketushat Makom? So in order to understand this and why, why Eretz Yisrael is important and what it means, we have to understand the concept of makom. So we could do this a lot of different ways, but I'll give you one example. You know there's Allah that a person is supposed to have a makom kavua. Okay, I was talking to the Shana Bet Boys about this today. If, um, if I walked into the base Medrash and you know, somebody was davening here or I davened, so for the Nishman I say I wouldn't say anything. And I would think, okay, maybe somebody was by and he had to start from an answer or whatever. If I came the next day and the same thing happened, I'd say, okay, he doesn't understand this is my makam. Now, you know me well enough right now. I don't need the honor of having a different makam than anybody else. But this is actually Allah. He's supposed to daven in a makam kavu. He's supposed to have your set place to daven. Where do we learn this from, by the way? What story in Tanakh? Anybody know? Not, I know the Shadabakers. <coughs> Ooh. Actually, a great guess. It's wrong, but it's a great guess. There's a whole discussion of Enders. The Sadeh is always the Makam Amikdash, so it's a good guess. But no, it's Gemara and Brachos and Davav, yeah? Avram what? Avram arises early. He goes back to the place where he was two days earlier. What was he doing in that place two days earlier? Anybody remember? He was arguing with God of the destruction of Stam. Now, if Hashem says, I'm going to destroy Stam, and Avram says, I don't want Stam to be destroyed. So he starts struggling with this. What do we call that? What do we call that? What do we call that? Avram is struggling with Hashem. What he wants, what Hashem wants. What do we call that? Davening. He's davening. It's interesting that the first time we see Avram davening is to save Stum. That is such a Jewish idea. So it made Avram Avram. Right? Hashem says he's going to destroy Stum. Avram arises early. If you're an Avram Avinu, you can't lie in your bed when, when five cities are being destroyed, even if they're evil. Right? It doesn't bring you pleasure. So why does he go back to the same place? So the Gemara says, Mikan Lameidin, we learn, therefore, the din of Makam Kavur. But why do you need a Makam Kavur? What's the difference with the Danish monastery over here and the Danish monastery over here? Why do you need a Makam Gavua? What's a Makam Gavua all about? So, 
I want you to understand, we underestimate the power of an environment. We underestimate the influence of an environment. You know, when um, years ago, I happened to be in New York for a day when my daughter was in New York. It was awesome. So I said to her, you know what? I'm just going to take the day and we're going to spend the day in New York. And it was an awesome day. And I, it was like two parts. One part was just, you know, to go and do things cultural. We, I took her to the World Trade Center Memorial and I took her to the Statue of Liberty or whatever. And we went to see a play. And part of it was I wanted to show her where I grew up. So we went up to Morningside Gardens, which was where I grew up from age five to age 10. And, um, you know, I showed her. I showed her where we lived. I went up to the apartment on 18G, but uh, they thought I was nuts. They, they said, you know, they didn't answer the door. But I showed her the building. I took her to the store, the first place I got beaten up. You know, everything, right? It was just a big, right? And, um, and it was a really powerful experience for me to go back to these places. But for her, okay, it was interesting. We were both in the same place, but we weren't in the same place. Now, why? Because there's an energy to a place, you know? If, if you buy a house, this is not just something out of a movie. If you got married and you want to buy your first house, and you find out that this is the house where Charles Manson murdered, like, I don't know, Sharon Tate, 15 people, you'd probably say, I don't know if I want to buy that house. Why? What's, it's just wood. Because that sort of energy, it stays in the walls, right? There's a concept of cleaning up your clutter. Do an experiment. If your room is a mess, take a day, go to your room, make it spotless, put everything in order. Watch the different energy and sit down to learn and you'll see the difference, right? We, 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 sometimes energy gets stuck and sometimes there's just space and goodness and it affects us. Now, if this is true for an individual that our space impacts us, so if I have a space where I have a lot of good memories, that's a good place to sit because it's going to impact me. If I have a place there's a lot of bad memories, you know, fortunately most of my bad memories are Lebanon, and I'm not going to Lebanon anytime soon. But if I would, if they open up and we make peace, I'd probably have a hard time visiting certain places because it would probably bring up less than pleasant memories. We get affected by a place. And I don't think it's all just psychological. I think there's a real energy in this place. When I walk into Herzl, it's an experience. I don't do it that often because it's too much for me. You know? Place affects us. And if place affects us as individuals, right? So there are two things to add to that. First of all, if you're affected by the place you're in, you're certainly affected by the people you're with. You're affected by the way they affect you and you have an impact on them. But if that's true for an individual, it's also true on a national level. Why do we need a land? You know, people get confused because what does it mean to be a Jew, right? We're a religion. We're a collection of beliefs. And you could be, you know, an American Jew. You could be a... You know, French Jew, you could be a Swiss Jew, right? And what we share in common, and you think of yourself as an American, I guess. For a long time I thought of myself as an American, but also as an Israeli, I don't anymore. Because that's the place you were born, that's your land, but that's not your religion. So being a Jew was a collection of beliefs. But we're also something else, we're also a nation. Now what makes people a nation is that they have a land. 
Okay? What makes a group of people French? That they're associated with France. In fact, if you take 10 Frenchmen and you pay them to move to Arizona, they won't be Frenchmen anymore. Maybe they'll still feel like their children will. Certainly their grandchildren won't be Frenchmen. Right? And yet it's interesting. Jews remain Jews wherever they went. Right? You know, you talk to somebody whose name is McGilligan and his great-great-great-grandparents came from Ireland. He doesn't necessarily think of himself as Irish. He thinks of himself as American. He has Irish heritage. He doesn't think of himself as Irish. Right? Most often. But we somehow think of ourselves as Jewish no matter where we are. And that's because we kept a connection to the land of Israel for 2,000 years. How do you know that the land is still yours even when you're not there? Right? The Rambam suggests in Hilchos Chumas uh, and I think, right? That there are two Kedushot of Eretz Yisrael. First, the first Kedusha was Kibush, conquest. Yeshua comes in, conquers the land, it becomes Kadosh. It's now a Jewish state. But then we got kicked out after Bayit Rishon, right? Okay, so we gave up on it. It's not ours anymore. 70 years later, we came back. And every place that we came back, we actually didn't conquer it again, right? There was no conquest, no army. Cyrus, Koresh allowed us to come back. So what made it ours? This time it wasn't Kibush, it was anybody know? Pardon? Nope, close. It was Chazaka. We demonstrated that we had never let go of it. Right? Anybody know the sugi of Yehush in the Gemara of Right? If, if I lose something, are you allowed to take it when you find it? If the assumption is that I've given up on it, then it's Hefker, it's not mine anymore. But if you can assume that a person wouldn't give up on it, like something really valuable, then it's not so personal that you can take it because I haven't given up ownership on it. The fact that the Jewish people came back demonstrated that they'd never given up on it. And that Kedusha, says the Rambam, is never gone. We're still experiencing that. Every time the Jewish people settle an area of Eretz Israel, they demonstrate that they never gave up on it. It reacquires its Kedusha. Right? Which brings us back to our last question. Why do we need a land? Why do we need a land? In fact, you can make a case for saying, better that Jews be spread all over the world. I know people who actually believe this. It's better for people to be all over the place because then when they try to kill us here, we'll survive there. But the Torah doesn't seem to say that. Why? What's the value of having a land? It's very simple. What's our mission? What's the mission? The mission of the Jewish people is to create a model society, not for ourselves, to create a model society so that the world can see how it could be. Right? What is it? Uh, 40 years ago, in 1982, 20,000 troops cross over the border into Lebanon. I've told you this before. Amazing statistic. In, from 1982 until the year 2000, it's significant. They estimate about a quarter of a million Israeli troops spent serious time in Lebanon. Right? In all of that time, 250,000 men over 20 years, almost 20 years, there was not one reported case of rape. Not one. Not reported by the Israeli army. No... Lebanese woman, no Palestinian woman, was ever raped by an Israeli soldier. In 20 years, not claimed by an Israeli court, not claimed by the Lebanese court, not the Red Crescent Society, not the Red Cross. There is no case anywhere. There are textbooks that say that Israeli soldiers rape women, which is nonsense. But there's no actual case of a woman who was raped by an Israeli soldier. That's unbelievable. And that's, I challenge any army in the world to occupy another land for 20 years and have that statistic. In that statistic, 
That's a Jewish. That's what a Jewish army is supposed to be. The world sees that you can have an army, you can kill a terrorist, and you can still take care not to kill civilians. That's what a Jewish army is supposed to be. And we're not there yet. We haven't yet shown the world what an ethical, you know, government looks like based on Torah. We need to get there. We're not there yet. But you can't create a model society that's visible to the world unless you have a land in which to do it. And that's the mission. Because the mission was never about the Jewish people. The mission was about the entire world. It's called tikkun olam for a reason. So that brings us back to our original question. What does it mean that I have a piece of land but I can't really sell it because it's not really mine. And I'll finish with this thought. There's a medrash. And the medrash says, you know, there's a Gemara in Bab Metziah. The Gemara says, it's in Perak Shnei right? Which is all about, you know, Shnei Mochzin, Betalas, two people are holding onto a garment, Zeromer Nimit Satiyah, Zeromer Nimit Satiyah, this one says, I found it, this one says, I found it. Zeromer Kula Shali, Zeromer Kula Shali, this one says, it's all mine, this one says, it's all mine. What's the din in the Mishnah? Anybody remember? What do you do? Yachloku, they split it up. And the Gemara then has a whole series of cases where two litigants seem to have an equal claim, right? And it's not clear what you do. Okay, so one of those is a piece of land. Zeomer shalavotai, v'zeomer shalavotai. Right, if this litigant says the land is mine, and this litigant says the land is mine. Now, the only way that this case, right, makes any sense, because, you know, you should have a star. It's your tribal land, as if you can't prove it. So there's a medrash, beautiful medrash. And the medrash says these two litigants, they can't prove it, so they go to a bezdin. And the bezdin, the rav, I guess he's the equivalent of a 2,000-year-old Hasidic Rebbe before Hasidus existed, says to the fellows, listen, I've listened to your case. You have no star, neither of you has a contract. You have no witnesses, neither of you has edus. You can't even demonstrate chazaka. You can't show that you've lived on this land for three years. So what do we do? I've asked you and I've asked you. You can't give me an answer. So let's ask the land. And the Medrash, this Avbezdin, cups his ear and listens to the land. Now they must have thought at this point that he's cuckoo for cocoa puffs. They picked the wrong Bezdin. But the Medrash is trying to make a point. And he straightens up and he says, the land says that it's not yours and it's not yours. You're its. Ki shuv. We were created dust from the earth, and we're going to go back to the earth. We don't own the land. The land owns us. The reason the land isn't yours to sell is because it's not yours. It's something Hashem gives us that's conditional to what we do to it. And part of that condition is that we maintain certain identities, which include tribal identities. And part of its condition is that we behave a certain way. Otherwise, it'll spit us out. And that, by the way, is very scary today. Are we living up to the responsibility of living in Eretz Israel? That's what this parasha is all about. You know? Why own land? You don't own land. You're blessed to be a tenant on the land. Shem lets you borrow it for a while. That's why you can't sell it. That's why you can force the buyer to sell. Because it was never his to begin with. Allegorically, this isn't just about land. There's so many things in this world, in this world, that we think we have. There is no word in the Torah for having. Right? It doesn't exist. Right? In Hebrew, we say yesh li. It is to me. That's not the same as having. There's no word for having in the Torah because having is an illusion. You don't really have anything. 
Right? Nothing is really yours. It's, it's temporary. And what we choose to do with that, well, that's up to us. Isn't it interesting? The Parsha Bahar, it's all about Shemitah, all about my relationship with the land, building a model society. If we mess it up, it's followed by Parsha Bahukotai, which is some of the most difficult psukhi, the most difficult tochot in the entire Torah. So there's a lot to think about. Parsha Bahar, Parsha Bahukotai. Everybody, uh, Shabbat Shalom, Bezrat Hashem.